0: Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. This program is intended for a print-impaired audience and is brought to you by Mind's Eye. Hello and welcome in with us here at Mind's Eye, the virtual newsstand. My name is Marilyn Kramer and I'll be bringing you Hour 2 of the Christian Science Monitor, also known as the Culture and Commentary Hour. The articles I'll be presenting this afternoon are taken from the March 6th weekly digital edition of The Monitor. I'll be starting off with Peter Rainier's On Film, Despite Oscars Controversy, Plenty of Good Acting to Celebrate. In Books for Global Readers, a review of the nonfiction The Keys*. I hope I'm saying that right, The Legacy of Slavery in an American Family by Carrie K. Greenidge and published by Live Right with 432 pages. In People Making a Difference, we'll be learning how in Gambia, to build a democratic future, Gambia teaches its autocratic past. This week's home forum essay is I Make My Peace with Procrastination. Need I say more? Moving on to commentary, I'll begin with the Monitor's views regarding Europe's weapon against disinformation and earthquake aid as a peacemaker. We'll visit the global newsstand to learn what the world press is talking about, Melissa Moore discusses in her In Award column how the word intersectability pushes a political hot button, and we'll finish up with some numbers in the news. So, as promised, I'm starting off with Peter Rainier's on-film article. Despite Oscar controversy, plenty of good acting to celebrate. This monitor's critic weighs in on the award nominee's and his own. Great movie acting provides an extraordinary passageway into a protagonist's soul. This mysterious alchemy is the height of the performer's art. The actor fuses with the role and, in a sense, so do we. More than simply identifying with the character, we are that character. Movie acting rarely reaches such heights, but when it does, or even comes anywhere close, it can transform a middling film into a must-see. We are now in the run-up to the Oscars, airing on March the 12th on ABC. And as usual, along with a few favorite nominated standouts, there are many performances I admired in 2022 that went unrecognized by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. I'll weigh in on both. Best Actress of the five Best Actress Oscar nominees, the two rang a bell for me, and they were Kate Blanchett in Tar and Andrea Riseborough in Two Leslie. Except for Blanchett's hyper driven portrayal, I thought her film was vastly overrated a love hate letter to the tribulations of musical artistry that was way too heavy on the hate. But whatever one thinks of her role as an autocratic orchestral conductor with a taste for sexual predation, Blanchette gives a full on portrayal of a woman self immolating in her own sovereignty. It's too bad that Riceborough's nomination was attacked in some quarters for its movie star driven Oscar campaign, mostly by people who hadn't seen the movie. It came and went almost without a trace last year. Her inclusion made some feel that other acclaimed performances, like those of Viola Davis in The Woman King or Danielle Deadweiler in Till, got pushed out. But Riceboro belongs in this this company. She plays a West Texas farmer lottery winner and single mother whose boozy life is in freefall. Her darting, ardent performance avoids all of the scenery-chewing clichés endemic to those sorts of roles. I didn't detect a false note in it. Among the unnominated, I did especially admire Davis's performance as the leader of an all-female West African battalion in the slave-trading early 1800s. There has always been a fierceness to Davis' acting, even in Repose. In this film, she looks both indomitable and ravaged. In the little-seen Irish film God's Creatures, Emily Watson is a doting mother who lies to the police to protect her criminal son, played by Paul Mescal, who was rightly nominated for Best Actor as a troubled father in Son*. Watson shows us the anguish born of, anguish that is, born of torn loyalties. Her face becomes a map of brutish sorrow. Something of the sort can also be seen in Nathalie Boudafou's plangent performance as Leo Tolstoy's long-suffering wife Sophia in Un Couple or A Couple. This one woman monologue, shot mostly outdoors on a sprawling estate, was directed by longtime documentarian Fred Wiseman and dramatizes Sophia's volum- voluminous notes and diary entries. Butafu, who co wrote the screenplay with Wiseman, brings it all to life. Her portrait is alterma- alternately forgiving, pleading, and vehement. Lest you think all the best work in this category occurred in the gloomy realms, there was also Leslie Manville's superbly graceful and touching turn in Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris as a working-class charwoman whose high-fashion fantasies are fulfilled. And should you desire further proof of Manville's astonishing versatility, Just think back to her diametrically different Oscar-nominated performance as the stern sister of Daniel day lewiss Haute Couture dressmaker in Phantom Thread. Best Actor. The five Oscar nominees for Best Actor are all recommendable. Besides Mescal, Austin Butler is triumphantly convincing as Elvis Presley in Elvis, Brendan Fraser is good enough in The Whale to make you almost forget the character's prosthetic tonnage, and Bill Knighty deftly, un- deftly underplays as a civil servant facing his own mortality and living. I liked Colin Farrell in the overrated The Banshees of Inishirin. Through his performances, Pedraeck, a dullish man who wakes up to his ire when his best friend unaccountably rejects him, takes a while to cook. The friend is well played by supporting actor nominee Brendan Gleeson. Two unnominated performances were startlingly good. Caleb Landry Jones, who won the Best Actor award at the 2021 Cannes Film Festival in the Barely Seen Nitrum, delivers an utterly original portrayal of a real life Australian mass shooter. In The Good Nurse, Eddie Remain, Redmain that is, plays a nurse. Also real life, whose hospital murders have long gone undetected, like Jones, he reimagines a seemingly standard villain into something entirely new. Best Supporting Actress, Carrie Condon is the exasperated sister of Farrell's Padraic in The Banshees of Inisherin*, stands out for me among the nominees for Best Supporting Actress. Her deeply knowing performance, so quietly comic and yet so passionate, radiates emotion in all directions. In this category, the Academy particularly failed to notice some of the year's best work. As two of the women who spoke out against Harvey Weinstein in She Said, both Jennifer Eel and Samantha Morton in Cameos put a human face on searing testimony that most of us only have only read about. Judy Davis, as the mother of the shooter in Nitrum, demonstrates yet again that, at her best, there is no one who surpasses her power or intensity. Why has this great actress not had more great roles? The most welcome appearance this year was Frankie Corio, who plays the doting eleven year old daughter in After Sun opposite Mescal? The film's structure is elliptical and arty, but Corio grounds it. Her Sophie has the fervor of an adolescent moving tentatively and bewilderingly into young adulthood. Whether Sophie is singing bad karaoke or absorbing her father's woes, Corio easily holds her own with Mescal. No small feat. It's always especially exciting to discover a potentially major performer so early in her career. Best Supporting Actor. Of the Oscar nominees for Best Supporting Actor, far and away the strongest for me is Brian Tyree Henry, who plays opposite a very fine Jennifer Lawrence as a troubled auto mechanic in Causeway. I remember seeing him in If Beale Street Could Talk and thinking I had not seen a finer portrayal all year. Lawrence plays an injured war vet experiencing PTSD, and Henry's character has his own demons. His performance is so richly inhabited that even when he's just bellying up to the bar or sharing some ice cream, the character's full set of sympathies comes through. His easy-going nature is a poultice for his grief. Among the unnominated I would single out two very different acting jobs from Anthony Hopkins. In Armageddon Time, he plays an old-world Jewish grandfather without a trace of shtick. In the otherwise mediocre The Son, his single appearance as a rapacious father opposite Hugh Jackman not only steals the scene, it steals the movie. Now we're going to move over to books for global readers and One Family's Legacy of Slavery. Carrie K. Greenidge's The Grinkies probes the complexities of race in American society through the lens of one fascinating clan. The book Nonfiction the Grimkes, The Legacy of Slavery in an American Family, once again by Carrie K. Greenidge, published by Liv Wright with 432 pages. In 1868, Angelina Grimke read in an abolitionist newspaper about a quote, thrillingly, powerfully impressive, and quote, student named Archibald Grimke enrolled at a black college in Pennsylvania. That's how Angelina and her sister Sarah, famous white abolitionists who had forsaken their family's South Carolina plantation decades earlier, came to learn that they had three black nephews, the children of their late brother Henry and Nancy Weston, a woman he enslaved. This moment arrives more than halfway through Carrie K. Greenidge's gripping book, The Grimkes, The Legacy of Slavery in an American Family. In its early chapters, the Tuft University historian tells of how the sisters, objecting to their family's slaveholding, left the South, joined a Quaker community in Philadelphia, and became known for their abolitionist and feminist lectures and writings. Greenidge also details the brutal childhood experiences of Archibald, known as Archie, and his brothers, Francis and John, under slavery. After the Civil War, their mother, with help from the Boston Freedmen's Aid Commission, was able to send them north to be educated. The book also introduces the Fortens wealthy black Philadelphians dedicated to building up black community institutions, but who also worked in uneasy alliance with white anti-slavery activists like the Grimke sisters. They have a place in the proceedings because one of the Fortons, Lottie, married Francis Grimke, known as Frank, in 1878. All told, there are many characters to keep track of, and while always compelling, the book's first half jumps around among them. The narrative gains momentum when the storylines converge as Angelina and Sarah, who had always believed their brother Henry was a, quote, kind master, end quote, are confronted with living proof suggesting otherwise. The famous sisters immediately embraced their nephews, promising to support them financially. While their acceptance of their black relatives helped burnish Sarah and Angelina's heroic reputations, Greenidge digs deeply into the family's archives to reveal their complex and often severe treatment of their nephews. Sarah was unmarried and had no children. Angelina was married to an abolitionist, Theodore Dwight Weld, and the couple had two sons and a daughter. All three were acknowledged by their parents and aunt to be unexceptional. Upon meeting her grim Grimke nephews, Angelina told them, You, my young friends, now bear this once honored name. I charge you most solemnly by your upright conduct and your lifelong devotion to the eternal principles of justice and humanity and religion, to lift this name out of the dust where it now lies and set it once more among the princes of our land. That fervent declaration set the tone for their relationship, which the author summarizes as a, quote, combination of deep love and relentless criticism, end quote. Greenidge writes that the price of their aunt's affection was high. Quote, the brothers unwavering, Personal and professional exceptionalism, and constant genuflection before the Grimke sisters' supposedly steep sacrifice—in exacting this price, the Grimke wields or welds neither acknowledged Archie Frank or John's actual needs nor accounted for their nephew's trauma. Still, Archie and Frank willingly paid the price making their aunts proud. John eventually became estranged from the family. Archie attended Harvard Law School and was a co-founder of the NAACP. By the end of the 19th century, he served as American consul to the Dominican Republic. Frank, after studying at the Princeton Theological Seminary, became a minister at the most prominent black church in Washington. In short, they were both stalwart members of, quote, the colored elite, end quote, a culturally conservative cohort for whom respectability was key. For instance, as a trustee of Washington's, quote, colored, end quote, schools, Frank moved to have two black female teachers fired merely for getting married. Greenidge observes that the concerns of Archie Frank and other members of the elite ignored the harsh realities confronting the majority of black people in post-Reconstruction America, lynching, legalized segregation, and black disenfranch- disenfranchisement. The weight of these two generations' expectations came bearing down on Angelina Grimke, known as Nana, born in 1880 to Archie and his white wife, who abandoned the family when Nana was a child. Frank and his wife Lottie had a daughter almost the same time, but she died in infancy, making Nana the sole descendant. The baby's death set in motion the devastating repetition of a painful family cycle drama. Just as Sarah and Angelina expected their nephews to stand in for the unremarkable next generation of the white Grimkeys, Frank and Lottie expected Nana to stand in for the daughter they'd lost. Unlike Archie and Frank, however, Nana chafed against her family's strict demands. She engaged in romantic relationships with girls from a young age, leading Frank and Lottie, her guardians, while Archie served in Santo Domingo, to cast her out of their Washington home quote you are not becoming a young woman with whom the race can be proud end quote Frank scolded in a letter Lottie piled on quote I have loved you since you were born as you were my own as if you were my own child it pains me still that you fail us again and again end quote When Nana later fell in love with a man, her father Archie, upset by the suitor's skin color, worried that he would, quote, darken the family line, end quote. He forced Nana to choose between her boyfriend and him. Already abandoned by one parent, she chose Archie. Nana went on to become a Harlem Renaissance playwright and poet of some repute, but while Greenwich doesn't say much about Nana's later years, the impression is that they were lonely. Nana's literary work, in Greenwich's words, puncture, punctured the lie told to her generation, quote, that elite educations, disavowal of their enslaved past and economic success, could, com- could, could compensate for their ancestors' various racial traumas, end quote. The author's affecting account of Nana's tragic life demonstrates that these traumas are not so easily overcome. Now we're going to move on to people making a difference. In Saracunda, Gambia, To Build a Democratic Future, Gambia teaches its autocratic past. At first, the students sat in shocked silence struggling to process what they'd just heard. Then one by one, they began to fire questions at their teacher. Did the former president's soldiers really kill people, even children? Why did some people support him? And how did all of this happen for so long? Is it true that this is what the security did to people? Is it true that they beat people? Is it true? Sharifo Sise, a teacher at... Bakotep Proper Lower Primary School recalls his sixth-graders asking him. You could tell from the children's faces that this is something that is unimaginable. It's been just over a year since Gambia's Truth, Reconciliation, and Reparations Commission, or the TRRC, delivered this landmark final report, After two years of publicly broadcast hearings and testimony, the report laid bare the murders, tortures and rights abuses that had been carried out under the regime of Yaya Jama, who seized power in a bloodless coup in 1994. The Commission's 17-volume report, which includes details of the murders of at least 240 people by state agents, is an invaluable collection of testimonies from victims and perpetrators alike. But it's also full of complex legal terms and moments too explicit to teach to children. For many rights campaigners who have rallied under the cry of, quote, never again, end quote, it's also an opportunity. They see the report as a springboard for teaching future generations about what happened under Mr. Jama, an imperative to securing their country's democratic future. For a generation of Gambians, dictatorship under Mr. Jama was all they knew. After seizing power in the 1994 coup, he swapped military fatigues for white gowns and a scepter and ruled Africa's smallest mainland nation through a mixture of mysticism, generosity, and political hit squads. While European tourists poured into Africa's, quote, smiling coast, end quote, each winter, Mr. Jama ruled over one of Africa's few genuine police states. His face adorned everything from billboards to bars of soap. Each year he became increasingly erratic, striking at real and perceived political opponents. During one anti-government protest, at least 14 people were killed. Another time an opposition leader was jailed for using a microphone without official permission. For the next twenty two years, mister Jama held sway through a mix of state brutality and development, shoring up bare bones infrastructure while unleashing secret police to do his will. In twenty sixteen, mister Jama suffered a shock election loss and now lives in exile. For Mohammed Sandang, an activist at the non profit Fantanka, meaning, quote, self-protection, end quote, in the Mandinka language, a crucial step in preventing past atrocities is making sure everyone can read the report. He presented a self-styled, quote, child-friendly report, end quote, at the Bakote Proper Lower Primary School last fall. It spells out Jama-era atrocities using simple language and illustrations. If we are talking about the future of Gambia or the future of the world, children cannot be sidelined. They have to know what is going on from the get-go, says Mariama Jobarte, a report co-author and CEO of Fantanka, a civil society organization dedicated to preventing sexual violence. That includes young people and children, because in Gambian society, children are always silent. Children don't have rights. They basically get information of what is happening last. Being informed is more important now than ever, as Gambia's transition toward democracy faces serious setbacks. The current president, Adama Barrow, promised a three-year transitional role, or rule that is, after his unexpected win in 2016. Instead, Mr. Barrow served out a full term and in 2021 ran and won again after forming a political alliance with Mr. Jama's old party. Prosecutors can't charge alleged perpetrators from the Jama era with torture because there's no law against it. A new constitution was scuttled in 2020 meaning Mr. Barrow is ruling under the same constitution, amended to account for a dictator's whims. But cautious optimism isn't out of the question. A tranche of compensation has been paid to victims identified by the TRRC. Another compensation bill is moving its way through the National Assembly to account for other victims. A bill criminalizing torture is also on the way, says Kim Bang Ta, Deputy Director of Civil Litigation and International Law at the Gambian Ministry of Justice. The most closely watched development will be that of a special court system designed to try those deemed fit for prosecution by the TRRC, including Mr. Jamma himself. Meanwhile, civil society groups have pushed forward education initiatives, something that they have more direct control over than government policy. We are working with the next generation to make sure we identify some of the lapses and breakdowns that happen to cause the violations, says Sierra Nadal of the Gambia chapter, chapter of the African Network against extrajudicial killings and enforced disappearances, to make sure we don't relax back into dictatorship. Miss Nadao is also the manager at Memory House, a museum dedicated to JAMA era victims, which hosts field trips and delivers presentations to local schools. The museum has started using Fantanka's report in its education materials. While the report is designed for children, it doesn't mince words either. Explaining Routine forced Disappearances, it reads, this is when government forces like the police or the army arrest people and then they are never seen again, ever again after that. Their families cannot be sure whether their loved ones are dead or not. That causes them a lot of mental stress and sadness, End quote. The Child Friendly Report also tackles issues like transitional justice and human rights. The report has been presented in 10 schools so far, with Fantanka's ultimate goal being being to integrate it into all curricula and libraries. The Ministry of Justice has said it is willing to distribute copies in schools across the country. Post-conflict and post-dictatorship prosecutions have a mixed record in Africa. In Liberia, a war crimes court called for by the country's post war truth commission simply never materialized. In some cases, successful trials have taken place in European or special courts, including for Gambians who served in Mr. Jama's routine, or regime. That is. The promised trials on Gambian soil for Mr. Jama and his allies would take serious funding reforms and commitments from the government. For Zainab Lobalde, whose brother was forcibly disappeared by the JAMA regime, the teaching of the child-friendly report is a small victory. We never thought it would get this far, she says. At the same time, both she and Miss Nadao, whose uncle was disappeared by the JAMA regime, say that education can't replace government reform and prosecutions. It is not a substitute for justice, Miss Nadal says, but it is the foundation for justice. Amy, Awa, and Adamo were some of the sixth graders struck silent by the initial presentation at Bakotab Proper Lower Primary School. A few months later, though, they're eager to chat about it it was very new to me, says Amy. She learned the truth about crimes of which she'd only been vaguely aware, including the murder of Usamani Koro, a finance minister who was killed in 1995. Members of the ruling junta, quote, took him into the forest in his own car and put him in the car and burned the car, end quote, she recalls. Awa felt it was important to learn about such things, quote, so that it will not happen again in the future, end quote. Quote, that's why they say, never again, chimes in Adama. And now, on a much lighter note, I will bring you the Home Forum weekly essay, I Make My Peace with Procrastination. For years, I took pride in arriving on the dot sometimes to the mild chagrin of my host. I have a confession to make. I used to be ridiculed for my punctuality and preparedness. If I were tasked with some signature, I'd be Johnny on the spot, complete, ready, confident. And if I had an appointment, I had an uncanny knack for arriving on the dot not a minute early or late, All of this good behavior constituted a point of pride for me. I think my time, conscientiousness, and unfailing fulfillment of tasks irked some people, though I recall one dinner invitation where I waited at my host's front door, my finger hovering above the doorbell, until I pressed it precisely at the appointed hour. My host appeared and seemed mildly put off. You did say six, I inquired, but the look on his face read, Well, yes, but really? In the interim, all of this self-control and punctuality seems to have been unraveled. For the life of me, I can no longer get anywhere on time. And when a task is in the offing, well, my house is a legacy of well-intentioned but uncompleted projects. Exhibit A, I put in a garden with high expectations, but I put off constructing a fence. To the animals that ravaged my beans and cucumbers, I say, you're welcome. Now and then, I take the time to ask myself, what happened? How could I go from tightly wrapped to, well, unwrapped? My best guess is that over the years, I took on more and more responsibilities, children, property, job opportunities, until I simply overloaded the business of my day-to-day living and eventually couldn't keep up. At the outset, this bothered me. The first time I was late for an appointment, I was at a loss to understand what had happened. And the first time I attempted a plumbing project and took a long, long break before thinking about finishing it, I felt as if I had let the world down. The ensuing leak reminded me to get cracking again. I have on occasion attempted to regain my earlier glory as a man who has everything well in hand and running like clockwork. One tactic was to put the next day's obligations on index cards, but then I neglected to look at the cards, which led to, you got it, missed appointments and unfinished chores. My only other option was to become a sort of happy warrior and live with the man I had become. I arrived late to meetings, apologize, and you know what? I'm forgiven. I put off tasks, and maybe by the time I get around to them, they no longer need doing. Exhibit B, the lawn, which was growing like the Serengeti. I postponed cutting it all through the lovely summer, and when autumn arrived and the grass went dormant, I no longer needed to mow. The result of all of this is that in taking stock of what I've become, I find that it has many welcome advantages. For one, I move more slowly through life since I have concluded that I can no longer always be on time, so I'm doing more walking than running. And I address my chores in increments, painting one wall of a room, for example, and then, at some future time, another wall. Eventually the task will get done, giving observers the impression of efficiency and industry. Interestingly, my new life as a procrastinator has garnered the approval of those around me because I've learned they are procrastinators as well and they have welcomed me to their noble band. And this ri- this essay was written by Robert Close, who is the author of Adopting Anton, the story of his adoption of a young boy from Ukraine. And now the time has come to move over to commentary, and we'll start with the Monitor's views. First, Europe's weapon against disinformation. One of Ukraine's strengths against Russia has been truth-telling about Moscow's real intent and in covert actions whether in cyberspace or combat zones. On February the 9th, the country was equally forthcoming in helping Moldova, its weaker neighbor, with whom it shares a 759-mile border. President Volodymyr Zelensky warned that Russia had a plan, quote, to break the democracy of Moldova and establish control over Moldova, end quote. The next day, a Russian missile did indeed fly over Moldovan airspace. Also, Moldova's Prime Minister Natalia Gavrilita and her government resigned, citing, quote, so many crises caused by Russian aggression in Ukraine, end quote, such as high energy prices, inflation, and an influx of refugees. Yet Mr. Zelensky's intelligence alert may have temporarily thwarted a Russian plot to control Europe's poorest country. Moldova's, Moldovan President Maya Sandu quickly nominated her former defense advisor, Doran Racine, as prime minister while praising the outgoing one. We have stability, peace, and development where others wanted war and bankruptcy, said the president. In recent years, Moldova has made progress in providing accurate information to counter the false narratives spread in Moldova by Russia and pro-Russia oligarchs and politicians in the former Soviet state. Pro-Russia television stations have been curtailed. Pro-Russia protests last fall to oust the government failed. And this winter, Moldova has found alternative energy sources in response to Russia's curbs on gas exports. Quote, Moscow's campaign against the Sandu government is a prime example of hybrid warfare. Julian Groza of the Institute for European Policies and Reforms told Der Spiegel, Instead of tanks, the Russians are using energy and disinformation. In much of Europe, Russia has used lies in an attempt to destabilize democracies, especially in the Baltic states. France has helped lead the EU effort against Russian disinformation. We must be driven by the desire to defend and promote access to good quality information said Catherine Colonna, France's minister for Europe and Foreign Affairs. The first requirement is truth. Dialogue is possible only if it relies on a shared vision of truth, realities, and facts. But as we're all aware, our ability to bring out this shared vision is currently the target of concerted attacks. In Moldova's case, a bit of truth-telling by Ukraine may have saved the day. The next monitors view earthquake aid as a peacemaker. Most wars are won by military advantage. Some are determined by something else. In Syria, after 12 years of civil conflict, compassion toward the survivors of the February 6th earthquake could provide a turning point that guns have not. On February 13th, President Bashar al-Assad agreed to open two border crossings from Turkey and allow humanitarian aid to flow into the northern areas controlled by anti-regime rebels. His concession marked a breakthrough in the relief effort. Nearly 9 million people lacked food, water and shelter following the massive tremor. Truckloads of critical supplies are now reaching areas long isolated and pummeled by war. The United Nations had to break through persistent resistance from the Assad regime and its backer, Russia, to keep just one aid corridor open. Then it got two more in February. While the Assad regime may exploit its concession to gain international recognition, the aid flow could also help change the dynamics of diplomacy in the region. Since the start of the Civil War, triggered by peaceful pro-democracy protests in 2011, the government has sealed off northern Syria and treated its people there as enemies. Now, Mr. Assad's gesture on on aid relief shows that even the most hardened dictators are not immune to the moral imperative to aid and protect innocent life. A similar approach recently worked in nudging Russian President Vladimir Putin to back the resumption of grain and fertilizer shipments from Ukraine to countries facing famine. In Ethiopia's civil war, the UN persuaded the regime to agree to a peace deal in November to provide relief in in war-ravaged Tigray province. Before the earthquakes, it would have been hard to imagine the Syrian regime making this kind of statement through its ambassador to the UN quote, Syria supports the entry of humanitarian aid into the region through all possible cross points, whatever, from inside Syria or across borders, for the period of three months to ensure the, de- the delivery of humanitarian aid to our people in northwestern Syria, end quote, said envoy Bassam Sabah. When a tragedy like an earthquake strikes, the suffering can soften hearts, temporarily curbing differences and leading to enough trust to make compromise possible. The opening of aid corridors in Syria may be temporary, but it shows that aggression is an uncertain force. It ultimately backs down to humanity's demand to aid and uplift. Now it's time for our visit to the global newsstand to see what the world press is talking about. Peace talks in Ukraine would bring urgent economic relief. This from the Sunday Observer, Colombo, Sri Lanka. The war in Ukraine should end but is not appearing to be ending anytime soon, writes journalist Rape Abenaki. Its toll on the global economy, though, is incalculable. Negotiating for peace or doing the best that statesmen can to understand the enemy is not an act of appeasement. So why is it felt that any effort to end the war is an act of appeasement? Finding a way towards a peaceful resolution should never be ruled out or approached lightly in a situation of this sort. Suing for peace is a must, and blessed are the peacemakers. It may, of course, be easier said than done, but at least there should be more than just the minimum level of trying. The world at this point doesn't seem to be convinced that anybody is trying. That's the rub, and that's what's disturbing. The costs to humanity are way too steep. From Le Monde in Paris, Europe needs to shore up ammunition supplies to Ukraine. On Monday, February 13, Secretary General of the Atlantic Alliance, Jen Stoltenberg, dared to make a painful conces- confession to the media in the midst of the war in Ukraine. Europe has run out of ammunition, writes columnist Sylvie Kaufman. The Ukrainian army fires 5,000 to 6,000 artillery shells a day, Russian forces four times as much. Ammunition must be delivered to Ukraine before Russia overtakes them on the battlefield. It's a race against time, Stoltenberg said. But the problem is Ukraine's consumption rate of ammunition is several times higher than our current production rate. Confronted with another emergency three years ago, that of a deadly pandemic, Europe managed to rise to the challenge together. Today it is struggling. From the Nassau Guardian in Nassau, Bahamas, education reforms sorely needed As the Bahamas observe its 50th anniversary as an independent nation this year, there will be many opportunities to assess where we have come from, states an editorial. Universal access to education was a primary goal of the Progressive Liberal Party after forming the first majority black government in 1967. In the decades that followed, the Bahamas saw the expansion of educational opportunities for the population. Still, the state of education in the country remains among our most significant concerns at this juncture. What we see reflected in the skills gap challenge employers continue to contend with stems from failures in our education system. The COVID-19 pandemic made our educational challenges infinitely worse. We urge the government to move hastily to put in place the recommendations that will be made to address learning loss. From the New Times in Kilgali, Rwanda, as mobile phones proliferate, so should awareness of scams. Rwanda has registered tremendous growth in mobile penetration with current figures showing that at least 33% of the population have mobile phones, states an editorial. Benefits that come from this are enormous, from economically empowering users by way of deepening financial inclusion to social functions like helping in education and information sharing. It is equally important to step up measures to counter any vices that crop up with the growing technology, especially cybercrimes. The effect to track down such criminals should also go hand-in-hand with education of the masses about cybercrimes. And from the daily Saba in Istanbul, In Turkey, trying to feel whole again, Amid the despair filled aftermath of the deadly twin quakes that crippled the country's southeast, my children continue to ask, Could this happen in Istanbul? writes columnist Mindy Yartisi. I can tell you personally that I am not ready to explore the psychology behind how we are feeling. There is nothing that can prepare you for the raw despair that you feel for those affected and the selfish fear that creeps in for your own family, home, property, and safety as you go down the rabbit hole of the, quote, what ifs, end quote. Though we all know that Turks are strong, it will take a long time for this deep wound to heal. Next up, Melissa Moore's In a Word. Intersectionality pushes political hot-button. When the College Board appeared to revise its AP African American Studies course in response to objections from the Florida Department of Education, it drew attention to the political divide over intersectionality. The College Board mentioned the word eight times, suggesting the theory was an important part of its curriculum. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis cited this inclusion as one reason the state rejected the course. Quote, they have stuff about intersectionality. That's a political agenda, end quote. The term intersectionality was coined and the theory first developed by law professor Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989. In her article, Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, Professor Crenshaw investigated the way the American legal system, feminist theory, and anti-racist politics all have, quote, a tendency to treat race and gender as mutually exclusive categories of experience and analysis." Very simplified, her argument is that in American society, racism is typically thought of as something that happens to black men, and sexism, something that happens to white women. Black women suffer suffer double discrimination on the basis of both their race and their gender, But because they do not, quote, fully, end quote, represent either protected category, being neither white nor male, they lose out on the legal and other remedies prescribed for such discrimination. The solution is to pay attention to their, quote, intersectional experience, end quote, and, quote, address the particular manner in which black women are subordinated, end quote. As this theory spread across academia, it broadened its scope and came to include many interconnecting identities beyond race and gender. But sometime in the 2010s, intersectionality left the ivory tower, left the ivory tower, and got thoroughly wrapped up in the culture wars. Conservative commentator Ben Shapiro contends that intersectionality creates a, quote, hierarchy of victimhood, end quote, in which the more oppressed groups a person belongs to, the higher their status and the more weight their words, their words carry. This hierarchy, according to Mr. Shapiro, puts straight, white, cisgender men at the bottom. This seems to be a critique, not of intersectionality itself, but the way that it is sometimes deployed, especially on university campuses. Of course, the theory is not immune to criticism. Some scholars have argued that its focus on interlocking identities isolates people in ever smaller silos, placing such an emphasis on people's differences that it becomes hard to build coalitions and work together. Whatever one's stance on the positives and negatives of intersectionality, quashing all discussion of it seems unwarranted." And that leaves us some time for just a couple of uh, points of progress around the world. From Uganda, the populations of elephants, giraffes, rhinos, and other vulnerable and endangered species in Uganda are on the rebound. After northern white and eastern black rhinos were hunted into local extinction in the early 1980s, a charity reintroduced four rhinos in 2005, and through breeding in a private sanctuary, there are now 32. Elephants are up about 100, are about 400 percent. That is to 7,975, and giraffes grew nearly sixfold to 2,072, both due to increased con- conservation efforts over four decades, according to the Uganda Wildlife Authority, or the UWA. Political conflict and poaching under a lack of law enforcement led to massive drops in animal populations from the 1960s to the 1980s. The International Union for Conservation of Nature called for more protection of wildlife on private property and the UWA said more work is necessary to help species such as lions and chimpanzees. But Uganda is home to more than half of the world's mountain gorillas and the UWA says that their numbers are growing. And in India, access to running water is increasing in rural areas. Nearly 57% of rural Indian households now have working taps that provide at least 55 liters of potable water a day year-round. With a goal of 100% coverage by 2024, the national initiative was launched in 2019 when only 17% had tap water. Regular access to running water relieves families, mostly women and girls, from hauling and transporting water from wells which mean more people are able to attend school or work. A survey found that households received service for an average of three hours a day and more than 90% of schools and child care centers were getting potable water but higher than acceptable levels of chlorine were often reported. And now it's time for our numbers in the news. 500,000 Russians who have fled the country since Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. The mass exodus has the potential to create a demographic and economic shift similar to the ones seen at the end of the Cold War or the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution. My goodness. 184 weather balloons sent up by the United States every day as part of a series of 1,800 coordinated daily launches around the world. $1 billion being directed to rehabilitate 22 hazardous waste sites across the U.S., including landfills, farmer mines, and manufacturing facilities, as well as to assist 100 100 other ongoing cleanup projects. And lastly, 14,125 islands that make up the territory of Japan. 7,273 more than official statistics previously reported, after a digital map- mapping project updated the long accepted figure of 6,852. And so with that, we come to the end of our time for this day. Once again, I'm Marilyn Kramer here at Mind's Eye. Happy that you could listen in, hoping that you found the articles that I presented to be informative, interesting, maybe even helpful, and that you'll be able to join us again next week when we meet again at the same time. Until that time, be safe, be well, and be happy. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at